Good morning, everyone. So this morning we find ourselves continuing on in our series of Growing in Christ. And what we're doing as a teaching team here at Faith is to hit several subjects along the way that we think are essential to the knowledge that you find within the Bible. Now, I want to be careful when I say that to make sure that you don't think we're picking a subject and exhausting it and telling you everything about that one subject that we're talking about. Right? One, because if you're looking at the time, you're going, wow, <laughs> right? This, this could be a long day. <laughs> but two, and more importantly, because the Word of God is so rich and so deep that there is no way within this small context that we could have a discussion that is totally exhaustive on these great topics. Today's topic that we're covering is very much the same. We're going to talk about the freedom that we have in Christ. Now, specifically, our Christian liberty. And it's a pretty important topic for Christians. And I dare say, with right and proper theology, it's a source of great joy in our Christian walks. Unfortunately, it can also be a source of great controversy within the church. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, chances are you've come across or even been involved in a discussion surrounding Christian liberty. For example, what type of clothes do you wear to church? Are you a suit and tie person, right? A bring my Sunday best to the church? Or maybe... You're a come-as-you-are person. Jeans are okay. Shorts are okay. T-shirts are okay. My wife and I joked, well, I joke, she swears that the main reason why we were initially attracted to this church is because as we drove by and they used to meet in the middle school, I saw people wearing jeans. Now, she's not entirely wrong. Let me just put it that way, right? Um, that was a plus for me at that point in time in seeing that. All right, but who's right? They're both right, right? You're not wrong on that. Does the Bible specifically say that you have to wear a suit to church? Does the Bible tell you that you can't wear clothes that are casual in nature? No, right? So there's so many things that the Bible, although it is our manual for life of sorts, right, does not specifically state. And we're going to talk about the Christian liberty that allows us to live God-honoring lives in that ambiguity of sorts. All right. How about, do you drink alcohol? Do you have tattoos? Do you participate in Halloween? Do you listen to hard rock music? All right. Maybe you gamble. Or maybe you do yoga. Oh, there's a really controversial one, right? <laughs> Right, or partake in a number of other secular activities. Now, the Apostle Paul's words, everything is permittable, but not everything is beneficial, usually comes to mind first, right, when we're thinking about this. But it's also easy to forget that when Paul said that, he was specifically talking in the context of sexual immorality or sexual behavior. Right, so where do you go to to kind of find and get kind of a high-level guidance for what we do. How are we as Christians to understand and enjoy the liberty that God gives us in living a Christian life? 
Well, let's turn to Galatians, as you can see up here, chapter 5. Now, Galatians is that scripture that's known as the freedom book by scholars who study that. And today, we're going to learn what Galatians, or Paul, had to say to the Galatians regarding freedom. Starting at verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For though the Spirit, or for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Bow your heads with me in the moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we just come to you today. Uh, your people, those sitting here today, called today. We ask that you would open our ears, but more importantly, open our heart to your scriptures. We ask that you would speak to us clearly. Let us know how we can glorify you, how we can live our lives as Christians in freedom and in joy, and not live our lives under the taskmaster of the law and rules. Father, this freedom you gave to us freely through your son, Jesus, we thank you and we love you. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, so let's start off right with verse 1 and kind of go through and unpack this. It's probably important to understand as we come through here what's going on a little bit at the time that Paul's talking. So without going too far in depth, Understand that there have been the Judaizers that had risen up in this passage and in this area, and they started telling people around there that to be a Christian was not enough. That what you had to do was add Christianity on top of the Jewish faith. So do everything Jewish plus do Christianity. Right? Paul vehemently attacks that in this passage. Verse 1 says, 
For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, to really understand this, we have to ask ourselves a question that's sort of staring us right in the face. Now, the Bible's really clear on several things, but in this case, for freedom, Christ has set us free. We really need to understand what he set us free from before we can understand what he set us free for. Does that make sense? So the Bible's really clear that there are three main things, among many, that Christ has set us free from. Let's cover those really quickly. He's set them free from the law, from sin, and from the penalty of death. Well, show me that, Bill. So the law, 613 laws in the Old Testament. So when you hear the law, that's what they're referring to. It's Jewish people know it as the mitzvah, right? That's that full set, 613 laws all throughout the Old Testament. Anyone try for the first time to read through the Bible beginning to end? Have you ever just undertaken that and said, I'm going to do that. I'm going to read every word in it, and I'm going to start at the beginning and the end. How far did you get the first time? Right to about Deuteronomy, right? When you get to Deuteronomy, what's going on in Deuteronomy? They start laying out all these laws. And it's law after law after law after law after law after law, right? At that time, like when I first started doing it, I had a habit that I would read right before bed, all right? When I got to Deuteronomy, right before bed was about 30 seconds, it seemed, right? It wasn't as long as I usually got through a chapter or something like that between there. Right? There's so many laws there, and they're once a day, right after another, and you don't always understand exactly what's the purpose of this. Well, all of those laws can basically be categorized in three ways. First are the moral laws. Now, those laws or skill sets really are set to teach what is right and what is wrong. Very simply stated. Next are the civil laws. And that is, how is the nation of Israel to govern godly? How are, that sets out, just like civil law does here, penalties for the transgressions. Right? You can read, that's where the eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth come from. Right? That's where restoring sevenfold things that are taken come from. And then there's ceremonial laws. And what are those ceremonial laws? Those are the religious rituals that were really meant to teach and point to something that God wanted them to learn. So maybe this time, if you're going to resolve to go ahead and start reading through again, when you get to Deuteronomy, try to put these out. You might get through a little bit further than you had in the past. But can you imagine trying to follow all of those laws? Right? I have trouble following the rules like a board games, like Monopoly. <laughs> Right? I have absolutely no chance of following all the 613 laws in the Old Testament. In fact, you know, if we go to play board games and it has more than about like five rules, I won't even play it. That's my attention span today. Um, I especially don't like those board games where the rules seem to change as you go along for different conditions. Oh, that just really rubs me wrong, right? So there's no way when I start thinking about these 613 laws, right, that I would have been any good under those. Now, why did the Jews need the law? 
This is pretty important. And we look to Deuteronomy in, in chapter 6, verses 20 to 25 for this one. So 20 to 25 says, When your son asks you in the time to come, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes or the laws and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household right before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us. So the Old Testament Jewish person looked at the law for what reason? To be righteousness for them. Let me state that a little bit more easy. If I want to be a righteous person, then I follow all the law. Let me state that even more easily. Right? If I want the blessings that God has set up and to stay in God's good graces, then I follow those rules. Right? Sounds like quid pro quo. Right? Do things, and if you can do them, then you get this benefit. So that was sort of this mind frame or... Um, frame of mind of the Jewish people in the Old Testament, their mindset. But let's go on. We see the sort of end result of having the law and trying to live by the law. In Galatians 3, 10 to 13, it says, The righteous shall live by faith, in contrast. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Ooh, what would that curse be? Curses having to follow all of the law, those 613 rules and never stepping out. Right? It says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Uh, let's pause here a second. So today, as we celebrate Right, and grieve at the same time the loss of two of our beloved brothers right, in Christ, even knowing they're going to a better place, still grieving our loss with them. We think about this, and it's natural to think about the, the standpoint of one day we will be in their place. And we don't know when that is. Right, but at the end of our days, and God knows exactly when they're numbered, right, at the end of our vapor, the way Jonathan said, our fleeting moment, we will stand before a righteous, holy, and just God for judgment. Now think about this. This is a God who knows and sees everything. Doesn't matter what lawyer you have, how skillfully you present that case, mm -mm. Only the facts of the case. And he sees it. Right? So, if you're a Jewish person standing before there in the Old Testament, it's very easy. 
have you followed my 613 laws? What do most religions say here? Because this is very different. Most religions say, well, it'll be a scale, right? I'm more good than I am bad, so let me in. If you think about heaven. Early on, when the gospel was first presented to me, a good friend of mine at the time presented it to me very similar way. I was brought up Catholic, and he said, oh, so you're Catholic? So if you died tonight and went to heaven, right, and St. Peter greeted you at the gate, because <laughs> that's what Catholics believe, right? Oh, and he said, why should I let you in? What would you tell him? And I honestly said, because I'm basically a good person. Right? If I look at my life, I've done a lot more good in my life than I've done bad. Right? There are people that are horrible. They've done other things. Not me. I've been basically a rule follower. Right? And he told me at that time, he said, well, what if you were wrong? Would you want somebody to show you what the criteria would be? I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> right? So he showed me pretty quickly in the scriptures that the criteria is what we've seen here, that you follow all the law. So by the letter of the law, if you break one, you're guilty. Not just if you break one, have you ever broken one? Let that sink in a second. So if you don't execute your life perfectly according to the Old Testament law as outlined in that book of Deuteronomy that we all fall asleep on the first time we read it, right, that we can't even get through, If you don't do it perfectly, you have no hope at the end of your life of entering into heaven. None. All right? Well, let me go on. Where are at? It says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Yeah. Right? The righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ lived that perfect life. He died on that cross for all of us. And you know what? When we stand before him, it's his righteousness, not the righteousness we gain from the law or from following rules that is counted. It's his. How joyous that is, right? I talked about that monopoly that I couldn't follow, right? That's like a get-out-of-jail-free card on there is what it seems like, right? What really comes out of that, though, is not that we have this license, right, to sin as much as we like because God's paying the bill, Right? We can order anything from the menu. I'm ordering lobster because he's paying the bill. No. Right? The real point of this is that we can't save ourselves and we need a Savior. Now let's pause here. Right? I mentioned how different it is from our other religions. It's different from our nature. Right? Our nature as Americans is we pride ourselves in being self-made people. Right? Hard workers, able to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. If it is to be, it's up to me. Self-sufficiency has become an overvalued, right, esteemed character trait for us. I don't need anything from anyone. That's a proud statement, right? But it's not how God created us. 
He created us with a need for a savior and he created us with a need for other people, for community. Now that's an idea though for a different message. (laughs) So getting back to this message, Christ freed us from this law. What else did he free us from? He freed us from sin. Look at John chapter 8, verses 34 to 36. He says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And I want you to be careful. Jesus saves us from sin, right? He removes us and he frees us from sin. He doesn't free us of sin. And that's an important distinction, right? We still have a nature. We're still being transformed. We are going to have sin in our life. But he frees us from being slaves to the sin. We're no longer slaves to sin ruling our life and being the predominant thing in our nature. Right? Our heart gets transformed when Christ comes in. We don't desire to sin as in our sin nature beforehand. And we now have affections for the things of God that without the Holy Spirit we would never ever want to do. Paul Washer says it much better than I do. Oops. He says, a lot of people think that Christianity is you doing all the righteous things you hate and avoiding all the wicked things you love in order to get into heaven. No, that's a lost man who's found religion. A Christian is a person whose heart has been changed and they have new affections. Very different thought out there. Now, some of your friends, maybe co-workers, they don't always get this, right? And it's a hard thing to explain to them at times unless you go through everything first. Unless they have that background, unless they see those other things. All they see to us is, hey, this Christian wears a suit to church every day and this Christian likes jeans. Right? Because this is their context. They're thinking about, oh, there's rules, right? And every religion has rules, and you've got to follow the rules. Well, one of those people must be bad Christians. Right? And the other person, they're a great Christian because of where they're at. No, it's the completely wrong context. Christ freed us from that. And he freed us from sin because we're not a slave and controlled by it anymore. Our nature, we're going to sin. We're not perfect. But we grieve about that sin now. We know it in a different way. We know it's wrong when we sin. Sometimes we willfully sin, though. Right? That doesn't mean we're not saved anymore. Right? That means he tells us if we sin, we're sorrowful, we repent and say, I don't want to sin anymore. He's faithful and just, and he forgives our sins. And we go on in the path. The last thing we're free from is the penalty of death. Christ freed us from the penalty that comes with that guiltiness. In Romans 6, 22 to 23. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, 
The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, don't miss this. <laughs> you got to catch on to this. So before we were saved, before we accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, before we put him on the thrones of our lives, right? everything that we did became something that would make us more guilty. Every time we sinned, right, we created more responsibility in us. We had more reason to deserve wrath. What happens afterwards? It works towards this sanctification. What? So when we sin and repent and trust God more and learn from it and stop sinning, we get closer to being conformed to the image of his son. It's a process. And guess what? Every Christian is not at the same place in that process at the same time every time. We have immature Christians, right? And I hate the word immature, but basically it means, you know, beginning new. You're learning, you're in the early stages of that process, right? We have mature Christians that could mean you've gone a lot longer along those stages of that process, right? You've sinned. It's not wrong to think that your most mature Christians have sinned a lot more than the most immature Christians. Let that sink in for a second. But, right, you would expect that the most mature Christians have repented of more sin, have turned from more sin, and have changed and been conformed more to the image of Christ over time of that process. Makes sense? Right? So let's acknowledge first in here, though, right? When you think freedom from those things alone, you should jump for joy. I'm not under that penalty. I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to argue over what clothes I'm wearing. Right? I can let God convict me on my, whether or not my Halloween celebration is God-honoring right, or honors something else. All of that's there for me. But let's be honest, freedom's a little scary too, isn't it? Oh, because now I've got to make a lot of decisions. When I have the rules all laid out for me, all I've got to do is follow the rules. I don't have to think for myself. Now I've got to think for myself. Right? And I know the natural tendencies of my flesh is to pull me back, right? I have this general weakness um, that I know that I have built into who I am in my nature, right? That I'm battling. Well, Paul doesn't leave his people there. He gives basically in the rest of those verses some quick exhortations for how to stand firm in that freedom. And we're going to go through that a little bit. Right? In verse 1, he says, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore. Don't submit again. Plain and simple. Don't go backwards. In verses 2 to 4, Paul says, Look, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. What's he saying? Don't go backwards. Right? I just said it. You were circumcised before under the Old Testament and under the law and for a reason. You don't have to go backwards there. And then he says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, he's obligated to keep the whole law. If you go back, you're under all those laws again. You go right under the same judgment. And then he goes on and he says, you are severed from Christ. And in the original language, this really shows you the brilliance of his writing. What he's saying, basically, 
is you're cutting something off for circumcision, but you're really cutting off from Christ by doing it in this way. Really interesting. I'll show you something else as you go along on this one in the way that he would do that. You who would be justified by the law, you're picking the law over Christ for your salvation. One of the things this reminds me of, and many of you may have heard of this, but in the 1600s, the Spanish conquistador, Cortez, right, went and conquered the Aztecs. And he sailed with a couple of boats down there. And he realized pretty quickly when he saw the, the multitude of Aztecs and how fierce of warriors they were, that he was in trouble. Right? He surely didn't have numbers and the odds were against him. Kind of like us as Christians, right? The odds are against you. <laughs> there is a prince of the power of the air. Really. So what did Cortez do famously? He ordered them to burn their boats. Why? No going back. The only way is going forward. That's what Paul's saying. Right? There's no going back. The way is going forward. Next thing Paul points out to the Ephesians in verse 5 to 6. He says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working for love. So, to stay free, trust Christ. Trust Christ by faith. So what does that mean? That means I have to trust that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was sufficient for anything I have done and anything I will do. Now, I know some people have problems with that. But I have to tell you, I don't. Right? That's one of those things where I look at it and go, oh, I'm the untrustworthy person. Christ is completely trustworthy. Right? That makes me feel great. He's never broken any promise. Me? I could probably count a few today right, that I've broken. I'm joyful when I think about this, trusting Christ. And that means I look forward to the future when Christ will stand Right, right there, and his righteousness will be seen by God when he's judging me versus my righteousness and what I did during my life being used to determine my everlasting resting place. John MacArthur says this, and I love it. He says, when you meet Christ, you either drop all the stuff that you've been counting on for your salvation and trust Christ alone, or you hold on to all your stuff and you reject Christ. You're either trusting you or trusting Christ. And when you trust Christ, all of your achievements become rubbish. Love that, trash. All of your achievements, right? Our very best is nothing better than filthy rags. And don't miss that part in blue there on the end of this. It says, but only faith working through love. Nothing else counts. So if I wear a three-piece suit to church... It doesn't count. Not towards my salvation. So why do I get so hung up on it? Huh? To stay free, trust Christ. Put your faith in what he did, not what you will do. Verses 7 to 12. To stay free, obey the truth. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him. Who calls you, right? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You change from an unleavened bread, just a small little portion. 
Very easily, what this is saying is that there are things and people in your life that will come against you and try to tell you what you're reading in the Bible is not face value. It is not clear. It takes additional interpretation. There's other reasons. It's clear. It's there. And you have to use the whole Bible. Don't take one little verse, right, a couple of phrases out of there and use that to determine what you need to do. That little leaven, a little wrong, makes the whole thing wrong. And that wrongness, that unclarity, that confusion is not from God. He lays it out pretty easily. Whoops, let me flip one more piece in here. Because I want to show you verse 12. Paul says at the end of this, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is one of the strongest statements that you will ever hear from Paul. Remember I said earlier on, he started with that, if you're going to circumcise, you're not just cutting off that part, right? You're cutting off Christ. Now he goes and says, hey, if you're going to do that, I wish you cut it all off. That's pretty darn strong. <laughs> Verses 13 to 14, Paul goes on. He says to stay free, avoid the flesh. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All right, so this is where you get that license part, right? So it's not the get-out-of-jail-free card. Right? If you want to stay free, you avoid indulging yourself so that you don't become slave to whatever it is you're indulging again. Right? Somebody gambling, right? okay, yeah, I can gamble here. But then I like it, I start trusting it, right? I gamble more and more, it's a slippery slope. Next thing you know, I'm leveraging and I'm gambling on leverage. Next thing you know, I'm destroying my house, my relationship. What have I done? I've become a slave to gambling. Too many things in this world are that way. That's why Paul does say, yeah, everything's permissible, but not everything is beneficial. He says the greater thing or the most excellent thing is being focused on others with your freedom, loving them. And what love? Have you loving your neighbor? The whole law is filled with one word. Through love serve one another. Which love is it that we serve through one another through? Is it the love for the neighbor? Oh, I'll submit to you it's our love of Christ that we serve our neighbor through. Because guess what? You're going to be called to serve some people who are unlovely. That's what God does. Right? He served and saved me when I was unlovely. You're going to be called to do the same thing. We serve those people out of the love we have for Christ. Out of the love we have for God. What he's done for us. Right? It outflows from us. Spurgeon said this, and I love it. He said, if you live for yourself, for money, for fame, for comfort, or for anything else, Christ is not your king. Spurgeon doesn't pull punches. With that, I'll ask that the worship team make their way back to the stage for their last song. While I do, we'll go over just a quick summary. So first, Christ has set you free from what? The law, from sin, 
and from death. Stand firm how? By staying in relationship with Christ, right? Walking with him, that other in the fire, listening to him, letting him lead you, right? As you go through. Trusting in, not Chris, Christ. Sorry, I forgot that T. <laughs> Chris is very trustworthy, right? He's great thing to think through, but it's really supposed to be trusting in Christ. <laughs> uh, and then by obeying the truth <laughs> and then not indulging your flesh. So let me pray for us and then the worship team is going to do the last song. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are so trustworthy. We thank you that you called us to freedom. We're a people and a nature that are just very different. And we have different likes, desires, and loves. And you created us that way. You created us uniquely. And you knew that. You sent your son for us. Father, we ask for your grace that you would give us to bear with one another in love. That we would allow these variations. Understand what's important to you in faith. Father, there are some of us here who maybe have not uh, yet turned towards you. Father, for those people... I lift up and I pray this prayer, that today you would come into their lives, you would transform their hearts, you would free them from sin, that slavery that comes in there. You would free them from having to try to follow rules for everything they do in their life, this long list, and, and counting all their transgressions when they should be counting how they're moving closer towards you. Father, and that you would just... Most of give them an eternal life and an assurance that when they get there in that judgment, they'll stand before you and Christ's righteousness will be imparted to them. Father, we ask all of these things knowing how capable you are and in the love of your son, Jesus. Amen.